Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Prior to this episode, we've only heard from one actual expert in the case of the murder of Jim Melgar. Prosecutor Colleen Barnett came on the show and presented the state side of the case against Sandy. Since then, we as amateurs have picked through every single crime scene photo and every detail of this case with a fine-tooth comb. The picture of the crime scene that night is becoming more and more clear. But before we move any further, it's now time to put expert eyes on the case. Someone with experience, both prosecuting murders and investigating them. Most of you are very familiar with today's guest. He has a background in law and psychology, and he spent five years working as a prosecutor in New York City before shifting his career and moving into the FBI. Jim Clemente spent 22 years in the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit as a profiler and retired as a supervisory special agent. His skill set in analyzing criminal behavior and breaking down crime scenes is world-renowned. Jim has literally investigated and consulted on thousands of murders, making him the perfect guest to come on the show and analyze a potential wrongful conviction case from the perspective of a law enforcement officer and even a prosecutor. Jim puts politics and personal feelings aside and looks only at the evidence and what it's telling us. What you're about to hear is the first half of my conversation with Jim. This is not a formal profile. As many of you know, I consult with Jim all the time. He's become sort of a mentor to me over the last three years. And this week, I hit record on our conversation where we're working through the Melgar crime scene together. So without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Jim Clementi. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications. And that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Jim, thanks so much for joining us again today. I really appreciate it. 
It's always great to talk to you, Bob, and to discuss cases with you. You always bring the most interesting ones. Oh, this one definitely fits the bill. Um, as I, I told you when I sent you the case summary, this is, and of course, I've seen at least nine crime scenes, uh, but this is the most complicated one. I don't know where, where it ranks in your list of crime scenes. No, it's not. It's certainly not the most complicated one, but it is very interesting. I mean, just reading the summary, there are things that stand out on both sides of the spectrum. So I'm really interested in getting into the weeds with you on this. And of course, I'd like to start with victimology. Okay. So of course, I gave you, I gave you, um, I think it's about six pages on victimology. Uh, and you, you've been through this case summary, right? I have, but I'd like to sort of go through the details, you know, the cogent ones sure. with you. So right up front, we don't have any, from what I see, any obvious risk factors in the fact that, you know, Jim's not a drug a user or abuser as far as we know. Uh, there's no extramarital affairs on either side. The couple doesn't have money issues, and they also don't have, you know, an abundance of money either. You know, they're not super duper rich where that would provide motive to someone. Right. Everything's relative, though, there, Bob, because if somebody's comfortable, uh, there are a lot of people who are uncomfortable. So just because they don't have a tremendous amount of money doesn't mean that they're if they're living in a nice neighborhood and they seem to be doing okay, uh, that could draw a certain element that would like to take advantage of that because they're much worse off. So just keep that in mind. Sure. And, and so while we're on that topic, I guess, and maybe you can take, I know we've been through this before, but you know, every season we have new listeners. Can you explain a little bit as to why studying victimology is so important to the process of developing a profile? Well, this is how I like to summarize it anyway, is that offenders pick a particular victim at a particular time, in a particular place, in a particular manner, for a particular purpose. And all those choices leak out information about the offender and their skills and abilities, their desires, what they want to do, what they're capable of doing. So that's where we start. And what it does is it gives us a foundation because the victim is the most important, and I hate to be cold about this, but in a homicide, the most important piece of evidence that exists. So we have to look at them very carefully and their lives, which translates to basically the risk level. How much risk do they take in the course of their ordinary lives? And on this day, were they acting within the bounds of what they normally did? Or were, was this an incidence where they sort of stepped up the risk? So in other words, they could be a low-risk individual, somebody that doesn't have a lot of exposure to criminal elements. But on a particular day, something bad could happen that puts them more at risk. For example, you're driving home on the highway, you get a flat tire and you have to pull off and it happens to be a really bad neighborhood, that could raise your risk tremendously. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you were somebody who engaged in high-risk activity, like a prostitute, a prostitute, by the very nature of what they do, they get into cars and go places with complete strangers. Well, that's very risky behavior. Drug users interact with drug dealers and with people who want to take the money that you're using to spend to buy drugs. So that's a high-risk behavior. So in this case, as you're telling me, these victims did not have any kind of high risk that was apparent in their lives. Right. And and I agree with that. And I, I was interested when you said that when we started off when I was saying as far as their money, you know, they weren't, you know, they were comfortable, but they weren't wealthy. 
And you mentioned that that could be a risk factor in the fact that for some people, they have something that they would want. Does that little element start to kind of make you start to think about who might have been potential offenders? Sure. Well, the whole purpose of profiling is to start with victimology and build sort of a, a mosaic of factors and characteristics that would then lead us to a type of offender. And it narrows down the offender field. So in this case, if they're only comfortable, we're certainly not going to be looking for sort of the Ocean Eleven crowd to have come in and commit this crime, right? Sophisticated burglars who uh, you know, have the ability to get into places where they're going to make hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars. That's not this kind of burglary that we, that we could be seeing here. So what we need to do is start narrowing down the field. And that in and of itself brings us to lower socioeconomic potential offenders if we're talking about a burglary going wrong or a home invasion going wrong. Right. And and what you just said probably seems obvious to a lot of people. I mean, no one looked at this crime scene and thinks it was the heist of the century. But it is important because, like you said, that starts to already we're finding information in victimology that is starting to narrow down that suspect field, even though it's just a little bit, but it's starting to to narrow the scope. Absolutely. So further on victimology, what about their plans for the future? I mean, they'd been together for how long? 30, they've been married for 32 years. Wow. That's quite a bit of time. Yeah. they were So they were high school sweethearts. They met when they were like 17 years old. Jim was flirting with Sandy in class. They started, went on a date and they've been together ever since. You know, they, they, their anniversary, I think I mentioned in the, the summary, was actually 10 days prior. Uh, but due to the, you know, the story we have is that due to some of S- Sandy's illnesses with her lupus and her, the epilepsy was pretty much under control. It sounds like most of the time, but she had issues with her lupus and a lot of brain fog that comes along with that and the arthritis and the hip replacement. For whatever reason, they didn't go out the weekend before. Uh, so this was, this night was actually their anniversary celebration. They were going out to celebrate their anniversary, their 32nd. And they hadn't yet gone out. Yeah, so they they went out to dinner. They stopped at CVS. They got some drink mixers, and they went back to the house. So those were part of the report that I gave you. There was there's elements that are known factors that we can verify, and these are the known factors. We have a, a neighbor that saw them leaving their house somewhere around six thirty seven o'clock. Said they were in a good mood. They were going out to dinner. They were excited to go to dinner. We know that they went to Los Cucos, the Mexican restaurant, for dinner because we have the receipt from Los Cucos. Uh, and then even the stomach contents are kind of verifiable later in the autopsy. But Sandy then says that they went to, they stopped at CVS pharmacy to get drink mixers to make drinks and have kind of a romantic evening at the hot tub. Right. We had the receipt from CVS and we also have video surveillance footage of Jim going into the pharmacy, getting the drinks and coming back out. So these are verifiable. Right. And so... Do you have in those receipts any indication of how much alcohol they consumed while they were out? Yes, they had one pina colada, which uh, according to Sandy, she had the pina colada. Jim didn't have one, but he took a sip of hers. Okay, so they clearly would not have been intoxicated unless it's one of those massive, huge boatload pina coladas. Was there any indication of that? No, none at all. Okay, so chances are they were not intoxicated. They drove home. They decided 
that they were going to do a little more partying and get romantic, right? Right. So, you know, generally this is, you know, pretty low risk behavior. I mean, obviously, anytime you go out into the public, you risk interacting with somebody, you know, that could be just the time that somebody decides they want to break in and rob that restaurant. That didn't happen. They made it home. So the question is, did they pick up somebody along the way or was this situation something that literally happened and had nothing to do with the night, the fact that they were celebrating, out celebrating that night? So along those lines, Sandy told police in her interrogation that someone was following them when they went home uh, or that they were concerned. They said they were uh, when they were going to CVS, somebody pulled in with them when they left CVS to head home. And this maybe a 10 minute drive there. They said the car was was following them, stopped enough that they caught both of their attention. They were concerned. But then when they got to their street where they would turn right to go down to their street, the car turned the other way. So she thought it was just a coincidence. It was nothing. which It might have been. But that just just to just to have that information out there, she did say that they thought someone was following them. Well, Bob, I know you, and I know you have a thing for looking at maps and GPS and so forth. How many turns did they have to make from the CVS to their house, and then that this last one turn was not made? In other words, were they going into a cul-de-sac at that point? How many turns to get to their neighborhood, and how many turns were left after they? went down their street. Yeah, I actually haven't counted uh, the turns yet, but that's a great idea. So, um, you know, after we're done with this, I'm going to get on a map and we should have the answer to that question. I never thought to do that. It's a good idea. Okay. Yeah. Because what I'm concerned about is, was it a coincidence or was it just one of their neighbors that happened to be going to the same place as they went? Or is it somebody who knew that if they turned down this one last street, that's where they were ultimately going? So the question would be, is that behavior targeted behavior or is it behavior where somebody basically decided to randomly follow somebody, get them almost to their home, and then swerve away, turn away so that they wouldn't get too hinky about it, and then double back and find out where they just parked? Do you know if they parked inside the garage or outside the garage? They parked inside the garage. So there was the, the if you look at the one photo I sent of the garage, there's a black truck on the right side parked outside. That truck was there when they left. They took Sandy's car. So that Prius that's in that picture, that's the families that came later that night. That wasn't there. So Got the it. gray uh, Intrepid pulled into the left side of the garage with the garage door closed behind it. Okay. And do they live on a cul-de-sac? It's not a cul-de-sac. It's a short street. Uh, there's maybe 12 houses. Um, so when you turn down the road, you go down and there's like 12 houses on each side. And then the road dead ends in kind of a cul-de-sac-ish type of area uh, where there's like a walking path. The, the neighborhood looks like if you had, if you took both your hand and have your fingers on each hand kind of coming together, uh, but not quite touching, that's what their streets look like. And that area between the fingers is like a walking path. Got it. And so I wonder if there's a sign before where this car turned away that indicates that this is a dead end. Because certainly that would be a reason why they might have turned away. That's another good question. I'm gonna I'm gonna check that out. I've got some uh, listeners that are in the neighborhood or that are in the area that can go check that out for me. That's a good question. All right. So yeah, that'll be important information to find out just to see if that's why. Otherwise, to me, it would mean that these people, if they were following them, had already known what the street looked like, the fact that it was a dead end, and the fact that they lived on that street. 
And so they were just trying to actually put them to bed, basically. It would also mean that the offender or offenders would be people who were interested in doing a home invasion rather than a burglary. Because obviously burglaries are better accomplished when people are away. And certainly the time to accomplish a burglary of that house would have been when nobody was there. They were out celebrating. I just wondered if perhaps they came home early, that they had planned a long evening and told all their friends they were going to be out all night. And in fact, they came back early. But it doesn't sound like that's the case, right? No, it was 10 o'clock at night when they got back. So you, you mentioned that if that was the case, if this person was following them, then their intention was, in fact, a home invasion rather than just a burglary. What is, as far as psychologically, what motivates someone? What is the What are the reasons that a criminal would decide they would rather do a home invasion than a burglary? What are the advantages there? Well, for example, if they thought that this family had a safe or hidden jewelry or hidden money, that they wouldn't have to rip the whole house apart. You can accelerate the process by, for example, if you know it's a couple, you grab one of the family members and you threaten that person and you get the other one to run around getting you all the money and it's just done faster. You can get in and out. You're controlling the maybe the stronger one by threatening the weaker one. It's easier to control the weaker one and then you use that person basically against their partner. So that's one reason why they might do it. Another thing is that it's it can be an indication that uh, they're really not thinking that much, that it's a, an impulsive act, that it's something that, you know, it's drug or alcohol fueled, uh, their inhibitions are lower, they want to get money maybe to fuel that, you know, addiction they have, or they just want the thrill of doing it. So it's there's a spectrum of different behaviors that can lead to that kind of crime. Okay. So I don't know if there's anything else with victimology other than, you know, kind of the the history of their relationship and all of that. The only thing left in victimology would be children. Do they have a family? Yeah. So they have the one daughter, Elizabeth, and Liz and her dad had a, a pretty strained relationship. They had a very close relationship when she was young. You know, I had mentioned to you the, the Jehovah's Witness Church that when Liz was born, I think it was in the case summary. So she was born in 85. And that kind of prompted the Melgars to join the Jehovah and be baptized into the Jehovah's Witness Church. And everything was good until t Liz got to be about a teenager. And she started to rebel a little bit. And then there became an issue where uh, she was actually raped and she didn't report the person that raped her. And then it came out later. And then that got turned into her being disfellowshipped for that. And Jim was an elder at the church at the time, actually stepped down because of it. He disagreed with the decision. Mm hmm. The rebelling teenage Liz turned into even more of a rebelling teenage and early 20s Liz, where she ended up marrying a guy that had a bad drug problem. She developed a drug problem for about a year, and she was, of course, disfellowshipped from the church. She still lived with her parents. Her dad was, it's, it sounds like the biggest issue was her dad was really on her to straighten her life out, and she wasn't interested in it. But so that, that was the only area. We don't have any reports from anyone that confirms that this was a sore spot between Jim and Sandy. However, it's it's the only place that I can see that I can identify where there could be a sore spot because Sandy was very open and easygoing about the church. She let other disfellowship friends come over. In fact, um, Liz has one friend that was disfellowship from the church, and of course, they're you know they're 
they're supposed to limit their interactions. She actually invited her into her house to be, I think she even lived with them for a little while. So, but Jim wasn't. And so Liz and Jim clashed for several years because of that. Yeah. It sounds like that is the only thing in their victimology that causes me any concern. And, you know, there's a significant concern there because if there is this ex floating around um, who has animosity towards the family, uh, that could be an elevated risk factor. So it's not huge. And uh, I think it was several years before that when they last were together, right? Yeah, they had been divorced for about four years, four and a half years at the time of the murder. Yeah, so that lowers the risk level, but it still exists. So I would just keep that in the back of your mind when you're when you're looking at this. Yeah, absolutely. That you kind of you kind of were talking about the X. For me, I was it's kind of looking at could it cause a rift between Jim and Sandy with that being a risk factor. Although two month, two three months before the murder, the daughter Liz and Jim still weren't getting along very well. Right after that, she found out she was pregnant. And that kind of served as a helped reunite her and Jim back together. So there's that we have we have email conversations back and forth where they were replenishing the relationship and they were they were starting to rebuild that. And then Liz had a miscarriage and Jim was very, very supportive. Knowing that and seeing how the emails and seeing how their relationship had gotten so much better, it kind of corresponds to when when Sandy was interviewing with the police. You know, when they ask, how's your marriage? It's good. It's great. It's, you know, because everybody describes them as being a very fun, kind of goofy couple. But but I caught her saying that our relationship is good. It's great. And she says, especially lately. And I think that that especially lately as indicating that he's finally patched up his relationship with Liz. And I think that was one thing that there maybe was a little conflict there before that. But it doesn't sound like the kind of conflict, even though it could have been even a serious conflict because he didn't have a good relationship with Liz. It doesn't sound like the kind of conflict that precipitates murder. The kind of conflict that I'd be looking for is more, you know, in terms of lifestyle, in terms of behavior, somebody really acting out or doing something totally against the marriage and things like that. Somebody being overly greedy and and so forth. Somebody wanted to get out of it so that they could go off and have their own life separately. I don't hear any of those kinds of things. So, I mean, I'll keep it in the back of my mind, but I don't, I don't right now believe that that seems to be an issue here. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
so I guess the last thing there would be uh, along the lines of what you just said is the church. So the, the prosecution's theory of motive presented at trial was that because they were Jehovah's Witnesses, she surmised that Sandy must have wanted out of the marriage and that uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses will disfellowship someone if they get divorced. And so because of that, Sandy killed him, hoping to get away with it so that she could be free of the marriage without being disfellowshipped from the church. Well, having lived through her daughter being disfellowshipped, I don't think that she would have had such a extreme reaction to that. I mean, she obviously allowed people who were disfellowshipped into her own home. She wasn't that religious in terms of, you know, following these strictures. Why would that drive her to murder? I mean, it just seems it would be tenfold or a hundred or a thousandfold what she cared about. In other words, if she was really that concerned about the rules of the church, would she have violated it so often? Letting these friends who were disfellowshipped into her house? I don't think so. No, I don't think she really cared as much. And I think that's why she maintained the relationship with Liz, even though she was disfellowshipped. And I think that she was happy that her husband eventually came around, but it doesn't sound to me, it sounds like the, the husband, Jim, followed the church's rules a lot more strictly than the wife, Sandy, did. So I would not expect Sandy to be committing something as incredibly violent and extreme as murder in order to follow a church rule. It just doesn't make sense in this case. There's too much behavior contraindicating that. Yeah, and I absolutely agree with that. So let's talk about her illness, though, her medical health. I think that's something that we need to think about. So lupus is a very debilitating disease, mm -hmm. right? Right. I mean, it causes all sorts of ailments and fatigue and, and all sorts of stuff. And I know one of my colleagues had it, and it really played havoc with her life. So that can actually limit your physical abilities. So we should keep that in mind. Can you explain real quick, because I actually don't know anybody uh, who has lupus. When you say it really debilitated her life, like how did that work with her? Well, the symptoms of lupus are achy joints, unexplained fever, swollen joints, prolonged or extreme fatigue, skin rashes, ankle swelling and fluid accumulation, pain in the chest when breathing deeply, rash across the che cheeks and nose. These are things that can really affect people's lives. And so with my colleague, it really hurt her ability to go out and, and do her job. So I could see this as something that might have interfered with her life, but also could have interfered with Jim's life. And if Jim were the one that was still alive and Sandy was the one that was dead, I could even imagine a situation in which the husband having to you know, help and care for and put up with this disease creating havoc in their life could get angry or enraged and take it out on his sick partner. But I just want you to know that all these things, it's like having severe arthritis. It, it limits your ability to move and to do things. So I think that's an important aspect of this case. I don't know how bad she had it or how long she had it, but it could be very extreme. 
Right. Well, and then you mentioned arthritis. You also did have uh, rheumatoid arthritis and epilepsy and bilateral hip replacements and uh, previous shoulder surgery. Yeah. So the other thing is that she was epileptic and I don't know what medication she was on. Do you? Uh, I do have that in the medical file somewhere. I don't know if I have it right in front of me. Look into that and also look at the side effects of that medication. I had a very close friend who was epileptic. And during the time that I knew him, he had gone through at least three different types of medicine regimes. And these medicines sometimes changed his personality. And sometimes it wiped him out and made him very lethargic. And other times it made him more aggressive. So I think it's very important that you look at the type of medication and how long she had been on it and whether or not she had developed a tolerance to it and also whether or not it was actually controlling her epilepsy. For example, if she's having epileptic seizures, then she may not be uh, you know, taking a therapeutic amount. She may not have enough in her system. So if it didn't control it completely, there's probably a reason why. So I really think this is a, a, an important factor. And I would like to know, for example, when she did have seizures generally, did they deal with this in-house or did she end up going to the ER? Did they call the ambulance and did she go to the ER in the past? Also, was it the kind of thing that she had an aura before she had an epileptic seizure or whether it just came on at any time? And if that's the case, why was she driving, for example? You know, should she have had a license if she was prone to these seizures at any time? So those are factors I think we need to look at. So along those lines, so she was on a slew of prescription medications. You know, she had like, you know, bag of prescriptions for all the different issues that she had. She had been on her epilepsy meds for years, it sounds like, and they were they controlled her seizures pretty well. You, you mentioned auras. She said that she typically would have auras before the seizures, not always. Uh, in this case, she had told it, the police investigators, at least, that over the last couple of days, she I don't think she said she'd had any seizures, but she was having auras uh, prior to that. And then they would typically deal with them in-house. She didn't like to go to the ER. She didn't like to call her doctor and tell her about it. And it, and it has to do with what you had said after that, which is, if she goes to the doctor and reports when she's having these grand mal seizures, then they'll take her driver's license away for six months. So it sounds like it was under control, but I know that Sandy and actually someone else that I know that has epilepsy has kind of a, which is dangerous, dangerous as hell, but it's something that I, I know that some people with epilepsy will do is they'll avoid that trip to the doctor because they don't want to lose their driver's license. Right. It totally makes sense. I, I totally understand that. So absolutely this is an issue that affects her life. This is not something that is just some minor thing. So she has serious health issues. And I think at least the lupus would be a health issue that would limit her mobility. And you tell me that she also had hip replacements. Obviously, that also could limit her mobility. She has some serious issues. Let's just put it that way. Right. And another one that I think is worth noting is that she had also had a shoulder surgery. I don't know. I, I believe it was just a couple of years before, but I don't have the exact date on the shoulder surgery. That drew my attention because when I was trying to recreate myself and test out the idea of her being able to, to bind her arms behind her back, 
I've had shoulder surgeries and both shoulders, and I couldn't do it primarily because of my shoulders. My shoulders just won't bend that way anymore. Hmm. Well, obviously, that's something that I would think that the prosecutor should have at least gotten a medical opinion about, but we'll see. I mean, we'll see. But uh, to me, I just find it very difficult to believe that somebody with all these medical problems who's prone to seizures and who's on seizure medication would be capable of doing something so physically demanding, but I'm not ruling it out completely at this point yet. Right. So so let's look at uh, the next thing that for me that I wanted to do was look at the crime scene itself as far as Jim's body. I should say look at Jim's body himself and see if we can figure out what actually happened to him. And therefore, we can try to translate that back into the offender that is capable of doing that. Right. So the first thing I'll say is that there are indications that where his body lays is not the primary crime scene. And that it could be part of a dynamic crime scene that moved from the room into the closet. So it does look like some serious violent activity happened in the closet, but the amount of blood on that chair and the placement of it on the two chairs that are outside the closet in the room, it doesn't look like it's just transfer that was done by somebody who was involved in this crime. It looks to me like he actually bled and dripped on that chair and that there was some additional behavior that happened there before the behavior that happened in the closet. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, so that's a good place to start because it's definitely a point of contention because there's a couple of different theories there. Now, so I'm looking at on the, the case number, the, the close-up photo of the back of the wooden chair right now. Mm-hmm. I'm not a blood spatter expert by any means. If you zoom in on the top left, these are the areas of concern for me is I don't see specifically there are, I'm looking at one, two, three, at least three droplets that don't have any directionality to them. They look round, you know, and then some of the other ones that appear to have tails, but when you look at it, it looks, that's, it's looks like gravity run down, not tails from velocity. Yeah, there's one that I would agree with you about, and that is there's a swirly thing to the that swirls to the on the left hand side of the back of the chair. There's a swirly thing that swirls to the right, carved into the wood. Yep. And there are two very distinct drops on there. There are two on the top that look 
fairly straight without any tails, and there are two that look like they have tails. The one on the right, lower right of those two, mm-hmm. that looks like gravity. Okay, so and that's what you should expect. You have a lighter color on the top half of it because the weight of the blood pulled it down and the viscosity of the blood kept it together. So it hardened and dried thicker on the bottom than on the top. That's, I would believe, totally from gravity. In other words, that's not an indication of of directionality. Right. But directly to the left of that, when I zoom in really close, I see it narrow and then get wider. And that is directionality. Okay. So that's that's an indicator to me that that blood was moving in direction of that smaller drop. And if you look directly to the right of that on the main body of the chair itself, there's another long oblong drop and then more directionality. It narrows and then widens again. And then of course to the left on that the outer car- wood carving, there's a very good example of directionality. So to me this is why we have to always understand that crime scenes are dynamic. I mean, it's not like in the movies where somebody gets shot and they fall dead. It doesn't happen that way or go flying through a glass door or whatever. It doesn't happen that way. So it's very possible that at some point this chair was laying down, the back of this chair being parallel to the floor. It's also possible that the source of the blood went straight at it. And it wasn't, there wasn't enough of it to, to actually, there was no directionality. In other words, it came straight at it, 90 degrees from straight across. It's also possible that there was blood dripping on it from above. And that's why you see that directionality. So there's all sorts of different ways that this can happen. And the fact that there's multiple things tells me that this chair may have moved with respect to the bleeding body or the bleeding body may have moved with respect to it. So there's clearly some transfer bloodstains and then with a significant amount of blood because it drains down, right? So there's some serious transfer going on there. And so I would say that something, a source of blood, like a scalp, for example, could have been bashed in, started bleeding here, and that could have caused the chair to fall down and that blood dripping onto the back of that person and then getting transferred onto the chair, and then that person getting up at some point, whether that's immediately or not, it seems like some time has passed because there's a lot of blood that came out. See what I'm saying? Yeah, and I and I agree with your point, uh, and that was kind of where I was going with it, it in the fact that this was dynamic, you know, because some of the drops do have some directionality. Doesn't look like real high velocity, but definitely directionality. Yeah, not high velocity. High velocity. What you would see is is minute, it's almost spray. Because of the viscosity of blood, in order for it to be a very small drop, it has to be moving at high speed. Otherwise, it just sticks together. Right. And then there's the other, you know, several, you know, in that little swirl we first started with there, you have the two you identified. And then there's the two right above it that look, you know, they, they don't have much of a tail at all. And then above them on the main body of the chair, there's a couple of them that are just round and the gravity's pulled them down into the crack and not down, which to me indicates that at some point that chair was laying down flat on its back and blood was dripping straight down onto it. But then at other times it was up and blood was dripping down from above it with it it, it upright. So you'd have to actually microscopically examine to find out if there are any overlays of that. 
And it would be great to find one and determine one drop even, excuse me, it would have to be two drops, one on top of the other, but one location where one drop fell on top of another. And then we'd be able to determine if that's the case, we'd be able to determine whether it was laying down first and dropping straight down or whether it was up and the blood was moving first and then it was laying down. But I don't see any way to make that determination from this photograph. Obviously, this would have had to have been something that hopefully was preserved. I hope they preserved this chair and you know brought it to the lab and it would have been something that a good blood spatter expert would have spent some time trying to determine. There's another thing that indicates uh, that's consistent with what you said, Bob, and that if you go all the way to the right side of the chair and you could see the the white, uh, I think it's the sheet behind it. Mm-hmm. So you go to the right side and on the underside of the uh, cutout, you see a, a drop, which looks very much like blood there. And it looks like it's fairly round, right? In other words, it's in the it's in the carve out. So where the the center of the chair, the back of the chair, wise out and goes wide. Uh-huh. And there's two eyelets that are cut out on e- one on either side, right? Right. You look inside that eyelet on the right hand side. There's a drop there, and that can't happen from a source that's straight above the chair because if it's standing up, because the wood above it blocks it. And it doesn't have a directionality as if it came down from front to back. Okay. And then you see the eye, the big eye cut out, you know, it's like eye shape cut out. Mm-hmm. So look at the right eye. Oh, gotcha. So that drop looks like it can only have gotten there from the chair being laid down and a drop coming down. Mm-hmm. Or at least the chair leaning back. Right. Absolutely. I mean, and so I, I guess what you and I both both seem to agree on this is that the blood was dropped or spattered or whatever it was onto that chair in a dynamic way in different places. So at one point it's laying down, at one point it's up. It wasn't just sitting right there the whole time. Right. When you were talking about the the amount of blood that's on it, the transfer blood and, and the volume of it that's there, my issue with that happening there with the chair as it sits is the lack of any blood spatter anywhere else around it. So we've got a couple little spatters on the sheet beside it, but that would also be in line with cast off if someone was, say, swinging a blade or something from inside of the closet. That's It could reach there. But there's nothing on the wall. There's nothing on the carpet. There's nothing else around there. There's not blood spatter on the carpet underneath that chair where those blood drops came down onto it. Well, there there is some on the seat itself. There's some. Right. It looks like blood. It's very difficult because of the the weave of the pattern to determine anything. Uh, it looks it could be transfer. It could just be somebody bled on there. It could be a combination of the two. And there's a couple on the back of the chair as well. I'm just going to go two pictures up and look at that. So the blood that's on the back of the seat of the chair comes down and actually drips onto the floor. Right, but it drips onto the back of the chair first. Mm-hmm. So I think that's multiple drops in the same location. I don't think the same drop hit the chair and then ran down and then skipped and hit the rim of the, the seat and then went down. I think that is 
one drop, it hit the rim of the seat and then dropped onto the the side of the seat. I think there's another drop that preceded it that hit the cushion and soaked into the cushion there. There's at least two drops that dropped there. Mm-hmm. So I think that means that for a period of time, even a short period of time, the source was sitting on that chair and it bled and dropped down. Yeah, I agree with that. So well, I guess let me ask you what you think about this. Do you think it, it could be possible? So say during the struggle, and, and I know we recommend I'll tell this for certain, but do you think this is possible or plausible with this chair? During the struggle, the chair gets knocked over onto its back. The violence happens in the closet. The killer comes out with blood all over them, and they come out to the chair. Maybe they take their gloves off or take a shirt, set the knife down that gets the blood, the transfer blood on the chair. They're dripping blood onto it. Then they pick the chair back up, and they're still dripping as they're standing there cleaning themselves off with, with maybe towels or something. If you said that there was a pile of towels like that somewhere there, then, but does, unless they had a rag that they were trying to clean up uh, blood and they, they literally, it was soaked with blood and they flung it back and it hit this part of the chair and some of it dripped down and some of it fell onto the seat and, and so on and so forth. Where's this bloody rag? Where's these bloody clothes? Thank you for listening to the first half of my conversation with Jim about Jamie Melgar's murder. As I'm sure you were clued in there at the end, we're starting to dig into the facts of the case and work towards an actual profile. That's next time on Truth and Justice, which will be in two weeks. Mike and I are taking a week off for vacation next week, so the second half of Jim's interview will air on November 25th. Until then... Get on to social media, go onto our website, let's dig through these crime scene photos and see if we can answer some of these questions. It's going to take an army to solve this murder. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 6 logo was also created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to Patreon.com slash TruthAndJustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on the Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. 
You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at Truth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. worked hard for what you have your money your assets your 401k and home isn't it all worth protecting nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft lifelock ultimate plus helps protect your finances with up to three million dollars in reimbursement lifelock alerts you to identity threats you might miss and if your identity is stolen your dedicated u.s-based restoration specialist will work to fix it let lifelock help protect what you've worked so hard for save 25 percent off your first year on lifelock ultimate plus at lifelock.com aware terms apply